Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 34 years we have engaged the public in reflection and dialogue on the key issues of our day from an ethical perspective. All forums are free and open to the public, and information on upcoming events can be found online at westminsterforum.org. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and moderator of the forum. It's my pleasure to introduce today's speaker. Andrew Zimmern is a three-time James Beard Award-winning TV personality, chef, food writer, and teacher. Born and raised in New York, he has called Minnesota home for more than 20 years, and during his early years in our state, he served as executive chef of, of the acclaimed restaurant Café Un de Trois. Today, he is creator, executive producer, and host of the Travel Channel's popular TV shows, Bizarre Foods with Andrew Zimmern, Bizarre Foods America, and Andrew Zimmern's Bizarre World. <laughs> Today is a bizarre forum. He travels the globe exploring the ways that food shapes and reflects the lives and culture of people around the world. He's a contributing editor at Food and Wine magazine, an award-winning columnist with Minneapolis St. Paul magazine, and a senior editor at Delta Sky magazine. He serves on the board of directors for services for the underserved in New York City and the National Youth Recovery Foundation and he is Honorary Chair of Minnesota Food Share's annual March campaign to raise awareness of the food needs of people throughout our state. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Andrew Zimmern. Everyone listening on their radio is just wondering what the rapturous and thunderous applause was all about. I like to milk that for everything I can. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you to everybody at, uh, at Westminster Town Hall Forums. Thank you, uh, thank you, Tim. Thank you to everyone at Minnesota Food Share for arranging for me to be here and giving me the honor of representing you as, as an honorary chair this year. Uh, honorary chairmanship, chairpersonship, uh, is a fairly vague thing, but I, I believe in every uh, ounce of my being in the mission that uh, you folks are doing to help all Minnesotans uh, fight food insecurity issues. Um, and it's just a privilege to be associated with you. This is the largest month of fundraising. Uh, so anyone who would like to contribute to this very, very important venture can go to mnfoodshare.org and I would encourage uh, everybody to do so. I know I will again after I am done speaking here. We, we need help 12 months a year. This is the most public month for fighting hunger in Minnesota, but certainly not the only month that we are fighting hunger in Minnesota. Um, <laughs> I, I, I need to share a couple of quick thoughts with you before I, I give a brief talk about community and, and food and the passion that I have uh, for the power of food with a capital F. Um, the, I was listening to uh, the introduction and it almost seemed a little bit surreal. I often wonder why people want to hear me speak. Um, I, 
there are squirrels in the backyard of my house in Edina that have you know, more street cred than I do at my dinner table. Um, there, there, there are people at charity auctions who spend you know, tens of thousands of dollars to have me cook a meal for them, but my son would rather my wife cook every drop of food in our kitchen. <laughs> the list of incongruities goes on and on and on. Um, the, the, the biggest one that I'm faced with here is the, the responsibility of the, of the platform that I've been given today. You know, what do you, wanna, what do you wanna do with your 20 or 25 minutes when you address uh, the people of the state in which you live over such a crucial issue? And I was thinking about uh, one night in, in Indonesia, in Sulawesi, many, many years ago when I was firewalking. And um, I, I don't like the idea of things like firewalking or bungee jumping or parachuting or uh, cliff diving um, or a lot of other very, very, even more dangerous things that I've done in the interest of entertaining people on the magic little box that comes into your house with my show. Um, I'm, I'm a very soft kind of, uh, you know, pudgy guy. I'm, I, I don't pretend to be very, uh, you know, macho in the classical sense of the word, but when the cameras are rolling, I feel an incredible responsibility to be the avatar for the audience experience, and somehow I become a lot more courageous. And so, you know, in, in the pre-production meetings in the months leading up to the firewalking, I, I said, you know, sure, I'll do it, because it seemed like something that was so far away and I could always not firewalk. And I got there that night and I watched them shoveling the, the coals into the bed, which in the pictures looked very short. It looked in the pictures like a little six foot thing. So I figured I could step, step off and I, at worst I'd get badly burned on both feet. But when I got there, the fire walking, you know, trough stretched from one end of this room to the other. I mean, it was just massive. And I was like, oh my gosh, I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be, I'm going to be non-functional for, for three months after I do this. But somehow when the cameras were rolling and the, the men in this tribe who do this firewalking thing convinced me, to, I, I went ahead and I did it. I don't know how, but I did it. And so when I was trying to figure out how I would calm my nerves here, because I was thinking I would... Uh, Tim left me alone in his office, and all that reverberated in my head were the names of some of the people, some of my heroes who have spoken here. You know, Isaac Beshevis Singer has spoken here. Desmond Tutu has spoken here. Vice presidents, have, I mean, just, the list goes on and on of fame. You know, Carl Bernstein is coming here very soon, a man I admire, you know, immensely. I mean, so many, so many great people with great messages. What could I possibly have to add to a conversation like this about the issues of our day is related to food. Well, I, I think what I have to add to is I have a tremendous amount of experience with this issue. I have a tremendous point of view about this issue, and I work really tirelessly to change other people's point of view about this issue. To me, food really and truly is about community. At its, at its biggest sense and at its most personal. My, my life and my relationship to community ebbs and flows. It grows and shrinks depending on the day or sometimes the time of the day. 
we've had a, a really rough couple of months. I wanted to be a lot more involved in the ramp up to Minnesota Food Share month of March. Uh, but we had some health issues with our child, and it was really, really scary for my wife and I for a long time, and I had to stop working for a couple months and cancel some uh, work trips to make television shows. It was a, a really, really big deal. And my community once again sort of shrank down to its, its most vital core, which is the community in my home that needed all my love and attention. But in general, the course of my life has... That, that, and that my life has taken has been to embrace a larger and larger community. And I learned how to do that here in Minnesota, and that requires a little bit of explanation before we start talking about food. Um, I grew up in New York City, but I consider myself Minnesotan. I've lived here for 24 years. My mother-in-law feels very strongly I'm not Minnesotan. I'm, <laughs> I'm way too New York. Uh, for, all the, for all the Minnesota grandmothers out there, um, I, I, I just don't fit the bill. Uh, uh, I think you can, you can take the, the New Yorker out of the city, but you can't take the New Yorker out of my soul. And I, I think my, my mother-in-law is sometimes shocked at some of the things that I say and my attitudes about things. Um, but uh, she knows how much I love this state and its people, and it's because the, the state and its people in, in very specific ways have given me my life back um, and given me a community to call home. Um, I, as I said, I've grown up in New York City. I became a, a very, very, very low-bottom alcoholic and drug addict at a very young age. Loved food, influenced by my family, grew up at the right time, in the right place, with the right people, with a father who was larger than life and in the international advertising business. And so I had the opportunity to travel and be exposed to ideas and, and a way of looking at the world from him that was very, very unique and informs my perspective today. Um, my mother was very active politically. I, you know, I mean, every famous uh, political event in New York City in the 60s and 70s I attended with her. We had, you know, one week we had the Black Panthers in our living room, the next week we had, you know, people running for Senate, the next week we had presidential candidates. My mother devoted herself tirelessly to this. Um, and I, I was exposed to the right ideas at the right time, but I, I drew inward. Whole other story, I was a very messed up young kid. Um, and I found a lot of salvation in drugs and alcohol. Uh, big problem, wrong solution. My community shrank, and it shrank so dangerously that I was, by the end of my drinking and drugging, I was alone, living in an abandoned building in lower Manhattan, um, homeless, uh, stealing to support myself, hadn't taken a shower in 11, 13 months, um, and I was the guy who you crossed the street to avoid. I was very angry, very disheveled, and, uh, and I came off as crazy. I was devoted to only one thing in life, and that was me. I mean, I really, I suffered from me-ism. All I cared about was me, and I was cut off from my community. Um, I went to sleep at night after stealing cans of Comet Cleanser and sprinkle it around the pile of clothes that I passed out on every evening so the rats and roaches wouldn't crawl over me in the tenement uh, that a bottle gang and I were squatting. And from that trash heap, uh, I was rescued and I found myself uh, in a treatment center in Center City, Minnesota called Hazelden. 
and that was 24 years ago, and I've been sober ever since. I reestablished, thank you. There are a lot of people who aren't so lucky, and our prayers go out to all of them that they can find the, the spiritual connection they need to recover. Um, I was extremely, extremely lucky that I found myself in Minnesota uh, jobless once again, but with a roof over my head at a point in time that the restaurant community was taking off here and I started cooking again in restaurants. And, uh, we, you know, we had, Cafe Andertois had opened about a month before I joined there, about a month, I joined there as a dishwasher and busboy, a, a cook got sick, I ended up replacing him. Uh, within a month I was the chef, within six months I was the partner, and um, my food career uh, took off once again. I had been fairly well known in New York City and in Los Angeles, had worked with some brilliant chefs around the world, uh, but I was, I was putting together my life again. And I saw that I, I began to become active in my community thanks to you people. You folks had sprinkled me with dignity and respect when I had needed it the most. I didn't need, you know, all the other bells and whistles that come with the recovering lifestyle. After as many years being sober as I have been, the one thing that I, I credit above all else to my becoming successful in life, not in the public celebrity way, but just in being able to have a job and a family and contribute to my community, was that you folks here treated me with dignity and respect. The homeless person walking down the street is a human being. The kid in jail is a human being. The hungry person at the food shelf is a human being. The difference between the people in that position and us, sometimes, yes, they require some medical intervention. Sometimes they require other things. Most of all, they all require our respect and to be sprinkled with a little dignity. A human life, regardless of, his, of its circumstance, fertilized, watered with dignity and respect from its community will flourish. It is, it's like a bulb that is replanted. It takes some time, you do it ahead of the spring season, you put that bulb in in the fall, but after a cold winter and a warm spring, an amazing flower grows. And I don't think that's too large a stretch in terms of metaphor. Human beings are the most resilient thing that's ever been created. We have made an abundant and rich world for ourselves, which is why I find it so shocking that so many in this city, in this state, in this country, go to sleep at night not knowing where their next meal comes from. I carry a tremendous amount of shame that I deal with in my own way, that I cash a paycheck from four or five different entities for fetishizing and romanticizing a food world in the hopes that some of that will trickle down to the people that need it most. I do... There are many of us who feel that the platform that we've been given is one that we shouldn't give up. I get to make television and my show airs in 70 countries. So a message that I, a message that I carry about you know, the Food Not Bombs folks in San Francisco 
who do food rescue out of garbage cans behind supermarkets and feed the homeless in public parks uh, in the city of San Francisco. While it might be a controversial idea, I'm not picking sides politically. I'm trying to endorse a civic solution to a very real problem, which is making hot soup for hungry San Franciscans on a cold night. That is a very simple issue for me that has right and wrong, it's black and white, and organizations like that need to be helped. Sprinkling human beings with dignity and respect and showing love for them through food is what I think is a vital connector to restoring some of the broken problems that we have in our society. Um, the, I should say that just go back a second. I, I was I was at Undertois and I I wanted a larger platform. Uh, I have a like many people, huge ego, no self esteem at all. <laughs> so the answer was television. <laughs> and and one thing one thing that I've been reasonably good at is taking the pulse of the culture that's around me, and I sensed that there was a door shutting. I, I saw this incredible romantic age of food in America. I saw that potentially people in the food business would be, could solve some of our social problems, engage in civic discourse, that through food there was a lot of magic to be made and we could do a lot for our communities. I had to figure out a way to do that and I decided that the answer was, I'm gonna sell a TV show and I'm gonna build a Trojan horse. The, the TV show was one about telling stories about culture through food. Simple idea. Everyone went to a network with that idea. My twist on this was that I wanted to tell stories about food that hadn't been told before. Food is good, food with a story is better, food with a story people hadn't heard about is best of all, right? So I sold this show that the hook was the strange, crazy thing some communities put into their mouth. And some people see the show as, you know, fat white guy, runs around world, eats strange bugs. <laughs> That's a very limited view of my show. <laughs> but many hold it. For lots of respect for those people too. Uh, for me, my show has always been about teaching patience, tolerance, and understanding to people who need to have their eyes open. My show was unsellable from that point of view. So I had to make a hit show and then every year fight to have more of that kind of put onto the platter in front of the audience. And so far, so good, eight, nine years later, shows in 70 countries, it's a big legacy program on television. It's on a, a mid-sized cable network, but I believe the popularity of the show actually uh, dwarfs its viewership, which happens with some uh, niche cable shows like ours. I'm very proud of it and the people who make it with me. Um, but the, the key for me was showing the world especially once the show started its international uh, sales and went into other countries. Uh, some countries it's more popular than it is here, shock of shocks. Um, but I needed to solidify my, what my relationship was going to be with this program early on. I needed to figure out what it stood for. And 
in a, in a country like America, not only did I carry a lot of shame for making money off of the, the greater food machine that exists here and this romantic relationship we have with food in 2015 in America, I really needed to have a very, very strong point of view. We always have a family meal in our program, always, because I want everyone in the world who watches it to see that families around the world are just like you and me and concerned with the exact same things. One of my favorite meals in the history of the show was in Lapland. Um, I love our kind of quasi-tribal and tribal scenes that we do. Um, I, I did my darndest to make sure, I can say darndest, can I? I can. Um, the, I did my darndest to make sure that the, we didn't use um, uh, translations underneath, what are, what are we, why am I blanking on that word? Thank you. I, I had to do my darndest to make sure that nobody did translations underneath the, the sound, the laps talking, um, even though they speak in a dialect that even most people in Helsinki don't understand. Up in northern Finland, the laps, you, you didn't, the grandmother, you knew everything she was saying. You know, I mean, herska, burska, nerska, nerska, you know, I don't know what that means, but I knew, and so did everyone watching the program, that she was saying, sit up straight, please take your elbows off the table. <laughs> you know, to the grandchildren, you promised me three bites, please eat your reindeer, the TV people will be gone soon. We had a long talk about this last night. You could, every single thing she said. We've been in tribal situations with the Himba, with the Pilchi Indians, with the Laosu in Thailand, with the Juntuazi in Botswana, on and on and on. Uh, the Boras in the Peruvian Amazon, where we wander into one small village, grass huts, native clothes, communal possessions, um, protected tribe, three pigs, four chickens in a communal pen, at which point they take about 25% of their net worth and put it on a table for my crew and I. You can't help but be humbled by that. You can't help but have your life and your life's work be changed by experiencing that. Someone asked me today when I walked in how I eat some of the stuff that I eat. I eat some of the stuff that I eat because I would rather be a good guest than a snotty TV host. I want to leave you with the last story about the power of food and community and table and really about perspective and why dignity and respect is something that's such a, such a powerful, powerful communicator. Um, we were with the Sakalava tribe in Madagascar a couple years ago, a lawless country, hasn't had a president, I think, for 17 years, no police force, ragtag army that, it, they're more like highway robbers. It's a very dysfunctional environment uh, and a very dysfunctional country. Uh, in the south, it's like a paradise. Uh, beachfront villages with native peoples who every day canoe 24 miles out into the Straits of Mozambique on one current, fish until they can fill up their boat and then ride the currents uh, back in, haul their canoes up, sometimes two or three days later, on the beach near their homes and sell as much food, well, trade it 
for the other things their family needs. And I was with a man named Jama and his family, and, and my goal for Jama um, had been to finally get to the point where I could ask him about his happiness because I was really struggling with being happy. I was working really hard and nothing that I had was enough. I had a big house, I had you know, a couple of German sports cars, I had a great career, I had an amazing wife and son, I mean, you know, on and on and on, I had everything and just, whatever it was, just never seemed to be enough. And I remember Jama had, he owned a pair of shorts and a shirt and he had a rusty little piece of a knife. It was just a piece that he would use to cut bait and we'd catch little fish on the way out and then bigger and bigger and bigger until he could float enough bait out around his canoe to spear a giant kingfish when it came up to eat the little fish that he was using it as bait. If any of you have seen the show, his throwing a spear on a moving canoe in 24-foot seas in the Straits of Mozambique as a fish goes at a piece of food, I don't know if anyone I was a fisherman, is about impossible, and he did it every single time he threw his spear in the water. Um, we got back to his house, and you know I was dying to ask him, and I didn't find the right time, and he wanted to feed us, and he apologized for feeding us the fins and the head, but the body of the fish he could trade in the market. He had 10 kids and two wives and three little huts that blew down every couple of months, and you know we basically told him, don't worry about it, we, this is great. So they boiled the fish head, and then his wife did something extra special. She went over to the corner of their little cook hut, and she dug in the ground with her hands, and she pulled out a little tin that had a lot of tissue paper in it, and there was a little white powder in it, and she put it with some river water into an antique pot on the fireplace, that had burnt scorched rice in the bottom, but they always boil their water in the burnt scorched rice so they get the nutrition and it thickens this water. And I couldn't tell what it was, but when it hit the water, it turned it beige and there was this very faint familiar aroma and I realized it was like 10-year-old instant coffee. <laughs> and she took out about eight or nine cracked little cups that looked like a kid's cup set from another little spot in her hut by the way, they slept on the ground. I mean, very, very, very humble surroundings. And they offered us, six or seven of us, a little cup of this uh, weak instant coffee. So my crew, I can see them start to say, no, 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 because they weren't sure about the river water and they weren't sure about what was in it. And I gave them the look that my crew gets at least once a month, which is, if you don't drink every drop, of what's being offered to you, you'll walk home to America. <laughs> and they've gotten really, really good about it, by the way, um, because they're on the same page that I am, because they're moved by the same experiences that I had. Um, but you couldn't help but get teary at their kindness and their love and the dignity and respect they wanted to show us. And I realized how horrifically biased my viewpoint had been. Here I was trying to, to tell the stories of people with dignity and respect in the hope that people would catch on that this is a universal, that food stories are powerful, that we all have cultural constants. I mean, math and music are great, but you know, you take away someone's boom box or you take away their quadratic equation, they're not gonna get too pissed off. You take away their rice or bread and there's blood in the streets. You know, just read our history books. Um, I pulled 
Jama aside, and I told him that I had planned on asking him um, whether or not he was happy, but I could see by his graciousness and kindness, he was probably the happiest person that I knew. And he laughed at me and he said, what don't I have to be happy about? I have my family with me. I have you people visiting. We're had a great day. The sun is shining. Life is beautiful. I was the one with the mistaken viewpoint. I was the one that carried a, a fractured point of view into that relationship. And it taught, me, it taught me the greatest lesson of all, that it's our cultural bias, that I've just paid attention to what I thought of once as the great equalizer. If we celebrated the things we had in common, like food, and didn't spend time trying to overanalyze our differences, sex, politics, religion, taste in music, language, skin color, that we might all be better off. Sitting down at a community table, sharing food with other people, is not only the greatest way to share ourselves with other folks, it's the greatest way that we can engage in mutual exchange of compassion. It's the greatest way that we can honor each other with dignity and respect. And it's the greatest way that I've ever found to share our culture with other people. I've never left a single meal liking somebody less than when I sat down with them. Thank you very much. Thank you, Andrew Zimmern. My name is Tim Hart Anderson, the senior minister here at Westminster Presbyterian Church, moderator of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. Our speaker today is Andrew Zimmern, chef, writer, television host, and honorary chair of Minnesota Food Share's annual March campaign to raise awareness of the food needs of people throughout our state. While the ushers collect questions for our speaker, I'd like to invite the radio audience to join us at Westminster Church for our forum on Tuesday, March 31st at noon, when distinguished scripture scholar Amy Jill Levine explores the topic, Who Did They Say He Was? Jesus in Text and Context. This is Tuesday of Holy Week, and a Jewish feminist scholar will be talking to us about Jesus. I love that at the forum. Forum events are free and open to the public, and information can be found at our website, westminsterforum.org. And now, Andrew Zimmern, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present questions from our audience. First question has to do with taking uh, off from where you ended your comments. It has to do with the connection of food and spirit. So many religious rituals and religious traditions involve consuming or sharing or gathering around food. Can you speak about that as you've experienced it in other cultures? Sure. The food is very spiritual. The exchange of it is very spiritual. And I think Sometimes, I, I believe it's Occam's razor that says the easiest uh, answer, the simplest one is usually the correct one. My experience in the tribal world has been just that. Food is so difficult to obtain. It was such a constant that we're so separated from that we forget the power that it holds over people. I visited in communities, some even in this country, believe it or not, in the hills of Appalachia, where they still hunt at night for their breakfast the next morning, and they hunt during the morning for their lunch and dinner that day. When you, when you have those experiences, when you spend time with the Juntoisie in Botswana, as I have, and you see the 
urgency with which they gather food when it's laid out for them. Uh, it's quite powerful, and you can see what a, a divinely inspired gift food was often considered. Um, the Juntoisie are really a great example. Um, there were some marula trees that were dropping marula fruit uh, all around their village when we were there uh, in the spring of 2009, 2010. Um, I ate marula at every meal. The nuts were roasted in the fire and pounded with roasted uh, rhinoceros beetles that were also coming out of the grasses at those times of the year. And the result, it was kind of like mixing ground bugs with peanut butter. Uh, it, was, it was an ancient power bar. There, there's nothing healthier. I'm sure there's some nutritionists out there. I mean, there's nothing healthier for you than eating roasted marula nuts pounded with roasted rhinoceros beetles. Um, combine it with a little bit of, of uh, toasted grain or some sort of farinaceous food, it was perfect. They, they were living in harmony with their environment. When the fish come out of the river, with the Athabascan tribe in Alaska, all they do is fish and eat fish and smoke it and salt it for the winter. When the moose and caribou are migrating, they take moose and put that up. The sharing of the food becomes communion, as it were, because of the sanctity of feeding ourselves. There's a relationship to food that we've lost over the last 150 years. While not a religious person, I am a spiritual person. And we've become so unchurched in the social sense of the word over the last 100 years, we forget that powerful feeling of community, of you know, you know, building the barn together as, as a group. In Minnesota, we actually have held on to that longer than almost any other community in the United States that I know of, simply because this is the one state where everyone can reach out and physically touch uh, a farmer in their own family in, in a general sense. Uh, but it is, it, you know, food and the exchange of it is spiritual and communal because of the roots that it has in our history, the difficulty in gathering it, and what it meant to feed each other. My wife and I walked the Camino in Spain a couple years ago, and, and virtually every meal we had, we were joined by strangers, yeah. and community was created every time we sat down to eat. It was a remarkable experience. Well, it's, it's, it's interesting you say that because one of the things I didn't get a chance to, to talk in my uh, talk about today was that essence of, of community and table. I think one of the reasons southern food paths are so popular today, right, from the southeastern United States, is that it baked into their DNA of their food culture down there is oversized portions, serve family style, because everyone had to feed everyone coming in from the field and you didn't know who would be walking in. And I think there's something after 30 years of just focusing on what's on my plate, of going into a restaurant. I mean, one of the hottest trends in the last decade in restaurants have been, you know, family Sunday suppers where, you know, a couple roast chickens are put down for six or eight people and family style vegetables and stuff and everybody oohs and ahs. Oh my gosh, this is so trendy. And it's like, well, that's how people ate for thousands of years. Is that happening in Minnesota? Uh, very much so, all, and all over the state. You know, the, one of the things that I think is so radically important um, is to recognize the amazing job that the restaurant community does. Chefs are historians, social promoters, business people, um, anthropologists, 
Uh, they do so many different jobs. Chefs are knocking themselves out to try to present foods and ideas that you all haven't eaten before or necessarily uh, thought of before because they are in a pennies profit business and it's very, very competitive. The great thing about chef-driven restaurants and why I love them is that that hyper-creativity that you see today on a plate in a restaurant that maybe you only visit once because it may not be your cup of tea will influence what your children and grandchildren are eating 15 years from now. You know, we're back into a honor our past mode in food history that I think is very, very beneficial. Why do you think Minneapolis has become such a big city for foodies, other than the obvious reason that you are a chef here? <laughs> and what separates us from other cities in this regard? Uh, when I arrived here 24 years ago, there had never been a raw bar in Minnesota. Uh, I was the first to do it at Andetois. I was the first to bring a razor clam in. We couldn't sell them. Uh, I took 24 pounds of razor clams that came in alive on a Friday night 23 years ago at Cafe Andetois and turned them into family meal two days later. Uh, now, over you know, two and a half decades after that, chefs here in this town that bring in razor clams can't keep them in the house. The difference, it has nothing to do with me, it has nothing to do with anyone other than the appetite, literally, of the dining community here. Um, anyone who tells you differently is, is lying to you. The difference in our dining community today is 24 years ago we were flyover country, literally. Um, not a lot going on here food-wise. And what was going on here food-wise, the handful of popular restaurants were fairly derivative of what was happening in other cities. At a certain point in time, thanks to the, and I know this is a dirty word in some circles, but thanks to corporate Minnesota, growing and growing and growing with our hard Minnesota, hardworking Minnesota ethics, um, these companies grew and grew. More and more employees were seeing what were in other cities when they traveled. The popularity of food magazines and food television brought those images into your homes and you became curious about what that tasted like. At that point, your curiosity and your hunger for those foods showed chefs that they could experiment at your expense. They could try new things out on you. I thought it was insulting when people would say, well, salt is Minnesota's favorite spice. <laughs> well, that may have been true a long time ago, but the Minnesota food culture, the Minnesota diner is the most curious, most excited diner in America today. And the cities that now we were taking our cues from, LA, New York, San Francisco, Boston, Miami, you know what's the most popular thing for chefs to do in those cities? Because they brag to me about it when I'm there. Look what we did. We made our own jams and jellies. I, I thought you were gonna say lutefisk. You were not lutefisk. No, thank God, thank God that's <laughs> disappearing very quickly. Don't, hey lutefisk, don't let the door hit you on the way out. The, the, to go into other cities and see farmhouse cooking from the Midwest being the hot on point trend, you know, it's amazing, think about it. 20 years ago, it was really popular to put bacon on a plate. Then it be popular, became use it in a recipe, right? Now what's popular with chefs all over the country is to make your own bacon, right? The DIY food movement. The DIY food movement never died here, ever. 
It's, it's a really miraculous thing to see. Now, at the same time, we've had some great chefs that instead of migrating to other cities have found that it's less expensive to open a restaurant here than it is in New York or LA, and you can be full all the time. So, you know, the great chefs of our town are, are making great strides in growing the diner because you guys have supported them. It's now a symbiotic relationship. And I think it's much more fun to see what's going on in a mid-sized city like uh, Minneapolis than it is to try to declutter what's going on in a city like New York or Los Angeles. I think it's super exciting to be a part of the food scene here. What's your opinion of processed foods or genetically modified foods? Well, those are two very different things. Uh, let me address processed foods first and foremost. We have a hungry planet. We need to figure out how to feed billions and billions of people. We're running out of land. We're running out of options. Um, I do not believe that processed foods are the answer. I also do not believe that companies like Cargill and General Mills and all the quote-unquote big foods, big food companies that a lot of folks in my business think are the enemy, they are not the enemy. They're actually trying to change as quickly as, as we want them to. It's just very hard to push a giant ocean liner in a different direction because their financial solvency is dependent on not creating a different cereal, with like General Mills, for example. It's try to figure out what the next healthy, awesome breakfast thing is. Cereal is 100 years old. They've got to figure out what the next thing is that we want to eat for all of our conventional health and wellness because you all, 30 years ago, did not consider the health and wellness issue as part of the food issue. Now, every single person in here knows that they are inextricably linked. For the first time in 30 years, a doctor asked me on my last checkup, first question, what are you eating these days? That should have been the first question for 30 years. It's what we put into our system. I think that processed food loaded with chemicals and preservatives is a huge problem for our health and wellness in America and causes more problems uh, than it creates. To, to break those walls down, we need to very badly decentralize our food. We spent a, a hundred years putting our food production in the hands of just a food, few companies. Now I think seven companies make 80% of our food. We need to destructure that. We need to return localism to food. That does not mean that we need to take our way our lemons and limes in Minnesota. It's not what I'm saying. I just think we need to be raising our own meat. We need to be doing it smartly. I think we need to be reconsidering and redefining GMOs. It's a very, very, uh, uh, it's a bad term for lay people to latch on to. Uh, Mendel showed that by combining different pea shoots, he could actually create ones that always bore uh, seeds or vegetables, right? We can figure out ways that an orange tree can have a yield of 500 pounds a season as opposed to 100 pounds a season. That is done by genetically modifying the organism, sometimes and naturally crossing, naturally crossing two strains. I think that's a good thing. I think, you know, baking something into a wild salmon's DNA and risking releasing it into the population with a genetic marker that will have negative, negative effects on the populations of that fish is a Pandora's box we never, ever, ever want to open. We know a genetically modified organism that's good and bad when we see it. It's like the Supreme Court definition of pornography. 
We don't need, we don't need laws and governments to tell us what it is. We need to tell our politicians how we want those laws to be written to the benefit of farmers and our generic health and wellness around the world. I'll, I'll leave you with one last uh, great science story on this question. Um, my friend Josh Tetrick has a company called Hampton Creek Foods, and what he's done is he's created a plant-based egg. Why is that important? Well, an egg is a very dangerous food ingredient. It can spoil, it can get you sick if it's spoiled. It requires a tremendous amount of energy to create. It performs 22 functions in the kitchen, right? And it's a very valuable part of who we are and we connect to it because we all come from an egg. So it holds a very, very sacred place in our kitchen. By creating a plant-based egg that actually tastes good, and replaces all 22 functions in the kitchen, it allows people to not only be eating something that's superbly healthy for you with none of the negative health effects that a regular egg has. And by the way, you still get to keep your regular eggs. I don't eat vegan eggs all the time, but I use his products a lot of the time in my kitchen. And the reason is, is because to grow those plants to make the egg puts people to work in a strip around the world called the equator, because a lot of these are hot weather plants, that will change the face of advantage in those countries and help feed those farmers and their families. It has a double, double win in terms of a new food product. Now, some people will call that a processed food. Some people may call it a GMO, even though it's not. Extracting natural, um, ingredients from plants themselves to remake something is just smart food production. I don't think production is a bad word. I think anything that feeds people healthy, good food and allows us to maintain choice and puts people to work is where the food business should be focused. It, it, you can applaud for that. Yeah. Is the American diet changing or do we still live in a fast food nation? We still live in a fast food nation. The American diet, though, we talked before about the top-down effect that chefs and restaurants have. Um, the next generation, the, the students that are here from Perpich, they have a keener understanding about everything that they eat, way more so than I did growing up, which is why, for example, we've all heard McDonald's sales are down, et cetera, et cetera. And everyone says, oh, they're marketing the wrong thing and they got away from hamburgers and all the rest of this kind of stuff. I'll tell you right now, it's because the American consumer is getting smarter. And the, the, the chain that's experienced the most growth, most growth in the fast food category, I believe is Chipotle. Um, the small chain that's experienced the highest rate of growth that just went public is Shake Shack. Those companies have one thing in common. I mean, one makes burritos, one makes hamburgers. But in a big sign, when you walk in, the first thing it says is, we buy direct from farmers in the neighborhoods our restaurants are at, and all that's in our hamburger is real beef. All that's in our uh, burritos is real food, no artificial anything. They're popular because people would rather eat that food than eat processed food that's bad for you. I think it's very simple. I think those days are over. I think the smart folks are creating quick service food companies and full service food companies that deliver a healthier product to Americans. And we're gonna have to pay for it. You can have fast food, you can have cheap food, you can have good, 
You can't have fast, cheap, good food. You can have two out of three. <laughs> what responsibilities do businesses have to respond ethically to the food insecurity experienced by so many? Well, I think we all do. I mean, this is the greatest, this is the greatest culture in the history of global civilization. America in 2015 is the greatest country, the greatest culture, the most incredible, I mean, it's, to me, it's Camelot. I mean, I'm a big time patriot, but I travel around the world. We do a lot of trashing of our own system when we do a lot of hemming and hawing and nothing's getting accomplished in Washington and on and on and on. But when you look at everyone else around the world, we're still it. We got a really good thing going here. I think it's all of, I think it's shameful that in that culture where the haves have so much that anyone is going to bed at night hungry. I mean, how? How, how is that even possible? I mean, and most people consider it so impossible that they even ignore people like me when they say one in five people are going to bed hungry. You know, the stat now is one in eight Minnesotans, you know, one in seven of which are children. You know, just look at the food shelf visits over the last year. And worst of all, the biggest rise I think right now is, you know, SUS in New York City. Our biggest problem used to be, you know, hungry vets. Now it's hungry, working poor. These are families where, where both spouses work, can't afford to put food on their table for them and their two children. There's something radically wrong with, that's an embarrassment and I feel a lot of shame about that, which is why I try to work so hard to raise awareness on this issue. We have to find a different solution. No one, no one should be going to sleep hungry in America. No one should be without healthcare or education. I mean, this is, this is the bedrock on which our country was founded. Time for one short question and answer. What specific actions around food insecurity can you suggest to us? Oh my gosh, you know, there, there are some really fabulous ideas out there. There's um, one of the big ones uh, that's there is to simply change the subsidy system in America when it comes to farmers. We're subsidizing the wrong thing. There's a young congressman, I believe out of Illinois, con young Congressman Ryan, uh, young man, I think he's in his third or fourth term, but he's introducing legislation coming up very soon to stop subsidizing you know, big ag and start subsidizing family farms across the board. I, I, think if, I think if I had to change one thing, it would, it would probably be that because it would be the fastest way to increase our local production and start to make us more self-sufficient state by state. I, I think that there's also a shared relationship that we need to have with food. Everywhere the public dollar intersects with food, public schools, public hospitals, jails and institutions, senior homes that receive federal financing, we need to up the level of care in terms of food quality for the people that need it most, right? We're, we're telling people, we're telling people that, oh, you know, the restaurant world, you know, expensive table called the restaurant world gives people an, a, a insurmountable hug that only food can give. That's garbage. We need to give that hug that only good food can give to our children, people in our penal system, our seniors, etc. Thank you, Andrew Zimmern.